Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain a leadership advantage as Ralph holds wisdom from his bag of over 50 years experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Welcome Ken Klein. He's a pastor of Christ Wesleyan Church in Greensboro, North Carolina, one of the prettiest places in the country. You know, we just want to tell your story kind of as it is, where you're at now, what's going on, especially your vision for multiplying churches. And then we'll talk a little bit about what you said, and then we'll back up. And, and I want to hear your story kind of from start to finish. Okay. So let's go. All right. You want to talk about where we are now? Yeah. Okay. Well, we, uh, yeah, three and a half years in back to the church where I actually accepted Christ in 88, which is kind of interesting in itself. But And I, I think I even mentioned to you probably a place where I was least likely to succeed. What I meant by that was it had just gotten old. It it was the kind of church that had the uh, plastic marquee out front, you know, that they used to put the letters and the the phrase of the week or whatever. But yeah, I came back and uh, I, I realized they needed help. They were they were despondent. They were struggling in some areas. And, but I felt God pretty clearly saying, this is the place. And so my wife and I landed back where it all began. And this began to work. I spent a, a really a good part of that first six, seven, eight months praying and just saying, God, what do you want me to do now that I'm here? Sitting in the office of the former pastor who led me to Christ and some great giants for me. Even the pulpit downstairs was Billy Graham's pulpit from the uh, great crusade he had in Greensboro back in the 50s. Some real nostalgic stuff. And sometimes I just find myself saying, what am I supposed to do now? Coming in behind all these giants before me. But it was interesting. I think it really started, Ralph, between two events. Uh, One was Mosaics down in Dallas uh, with the multi-ethnic side of it, realizing that we were seeing more multi-ethnicity in our church. I knew I needed to learn a lot, Uh, never having been in a multi-ethnic environment. And then coming in right behind that with the exponential exponential, uh, movement there uh, down in Orlando. I think those two events were one about planning and one about just uh, making it work in the community in, in the right way. So uh, I had some good coach. I would I would say there were some people that pulled in alongside of me. One of them was from within, within the Wesleyan Church, Santis Beatty was somebody, multicultural, multi-ethnic development for the Wesleyan denomination, wound up in Greensboro, pulling alongside of me and asking me some pretty tough questions. <laughs> Um, you know, who who do you eat with? Or is there anybody of color? Who's on staff? Anybody of color? Who's in leadership? Who's on? Who's leading worship? All these questions that really began a, a start to developing. What I saw really in that second year was the diversity was. Um, really beginning to happen seniors. Uh, the worship war was over. There was a unity uh, of music. Uh, there was a unity of color, Latino, Asian, uh, white, black, old, young, rich, poor, homeless, the whole gamut. And I thought I'd never see that, which was pretty cool. I really literally thought that in my living day as a pastor, I'd probably never see a total uh, unity of all the different groups in one service. You know, uh, I'm an old guy. And uh, I've been hearing all this stuff about unity and multi-ethnicity. And, and you know, I, I, I was in, um, I guess I was in Georgia in a big African-American church. The pastor was, I mean, very intent, very serious guy, good guy. And he's going on about how they're a multi-ethnic church and all that. And I got there and there were, there were like 
two white couples in a church of maybe 1,200 black people. And so I kind of thought, I'm never going to live to see this. But over and over and over, we're seeing everything you just described, universality of who's there, old, young, rich, poor, homeless, and then ethnically, everybody. You know, of course, in Hawaii, that's how we lived. But we were basically, I mean, very, very uh, multi-ethnic, but we're very middle class. And we weren't touching the rich people. We weren't touching the poor people. That's beginning to happen. And uh, pretty cool stuff. Anyway, go back and, and, and finish telling us where you're at. And then we want to go back and start out with the drama of the stuff. Yeah. The second really neat thing that started through that unit, they were asking questions about the building that I guess someone had maybe gotten rolled. It was interesting because as a layman, a board of 1990, and they were talking building. Did, where's it going to be? What's it going to be? Is it family life's gematory? Well, after 26 years, I come back to the church and they're still talking about the building and they're still talking about the fund. And I look in the account, there's a, a pretty healthy savings account for this building. And they asked me, and I, I just, I don't know if it was a, a nudge of the spirit or whatever it was that came over me at the meeting. I said, you know, I know, and God knows we're never going to build that building in this community anytime soon. And what started out as a $50,000 project is probably now a $3 million project. I said, what if the building was meant for the building of the kingdom, not for a building on the property? And I began to push for some ideas about church planting. At the same time, there was a planter in the area who had no backing, who had landed in from uh, Indiana. And uh, we adopted him, brought him in and helped fund the brand new baby church downtown Greensboro called United City Greensboro. Not long after that, we began to talk about another. And after Exponential, we came back with my associate pastor. And he said, I feel like I'm supposed to plant south of Greensboro. So we launched into that. And so within Literally a two-year period, we've launched two churches out of the church, which again, looking at that old, small, traditional church and what they've done to launch two, and both those churches are now planning launch teams in areas that need churches, even though they're still relatively small, they're already bringing in uh, resident planting interns to develop. So pretty excited about that. What, between the multi-ethnicity and the planting, the, the church, relatively small still. And someone was looking at a number at one of our leaderships meeting. They were still looking at the old scorecard and saying, well, it looks like we're down five people from last year in the same month. <laughs> and it was, it was fun for me to be able to say, okay, let's look at the real picture. What would it look like if we brought in all of our folks from C4 Church and from UCG Church and and from the Cambodian Church and from the Latino Church downstairs? And I said, we'd probably be about eight times greater than when we started three and a half years. Wow, that's incredible. Eight times. Yeah. You know, as you describe it, I I don't want you to give me numbers because I'm trying to deliberately, you know, I don't want this thing to be about numbers. But the observation is that most church planting happens in smaller churches. Uh, the the mega churches are beginning to turn. I had a guy email me the other day, how do I take a church of, I don't remember, 14,000 or something and, and spin it into a launch pad for micro church. So we'll see what comes, but it, it looks like the turn is coming. But it's yeah. guys like you that are going to lead the way. And that's really cool. Let's work back up to the victory, but let's go back to a uh, little history and 21 years of ministry and blue tire. What happened? Tell us about that. Well, it was, uh, I was in the middle of a church law. First, a lot of success. The numbers were there. The excitement, it was growing a lot. Unfortunately, I was the older. I was the launch, uh, launch past my young team. And I know you've probably heard, seen where some of the church really started to begin to work for all. Right? There was a, a little bit of a cultural conflict forming within the system, but two comments were made to me in the week before I was released from my position as lead pastor. One was, you're too old to be a mega church pastor, and, and that's the direction we're heading. The second one said, the best thing you could do 
would be to go back to a little small traditional church and just retire out there. So within uh, less than two weeks of that time, there was a, a meeting that I did not know about that I was called to come into at the last minute. I could tell the meeting had been going on a while. Uh, long story short, within an hour, I uh, was heading to my car, uh, lost my church, lost my uh, congregation, never saw them again. And I lost not just my church and my pastoral position, really lost my career at that point in time. I never really intended through the hurt to uh, pastor again. That led me to needing work and wound up taking a position uh, in a local manufacturing plant. Let's interrupt here for just a second. I'm hearing across the country similar stories. Not a whole lot, but some. One guy said that the mantra of the baby boom is who stole my church. All these younger guys are coming in and very, very similar things are happening. Maybe they're not removing a pastor. Maybe the guy handed off, but all of a sudden they begin to, you know, like you said, worship, worship, uh, worship big, all that. And I'm a kind of a nasty, judgmental, harsh, unyielding person. And I say what you sow, you reap and more of it for you. Guys like that, there's something that has nothing to do with the gospel nothing to do with grace, nothing to do with Jesus. You know, if you're one of those people and you're listening to me this morning, I hope you heard what I just said, because uh, this is important stuff. We're supposed to be dealing in love. We're supposed to respect our elders. Actually. You know, and elders can throw that around and, and make a club out of it. We don't want to do that. But there needs to be the grace of God. And, and the scorecard needs to be about those kinds of things rather than how big can we get? How quick can we get there? Go back to your story, man. This is tearing my heart out to hear this. Well, I did wind up taking a position town that I live in North and manufacturing. Actually, first shift in a metal fabrication. 110 of the grungiest, ugliest dudes you could ever probably. Uh, there were days. Uh, when I went in and was working on these metal machines, polishing, bending, all kinds of uh, crazy jobs I never expected. That I wondered what in the world happened. How did I get to ground zero? And there was some dismay and there was a lot of hurt within my family, the kids, my wife, losing a church that size, almost like losing a, a child. You know, we were really mourning and grieving loss. It was interesting though, what, what happened while working in that plant was different people would come at different times. Mostly these guys that worked out there with these questions and they were fairly humorous when I think back at them because they would say, hey, are you that like a rabbi priest guy? You used to be a pastor or something like that. And it was just interesting the way they would approach and say, I need some help. And literally one by one weekly, someone would come and with a comment like, hey, dude, I'm going through some hard times. Uh, my wife packed up and left me this weekend. And while that lips quivering would say something along the lines of, I don't think I want to live anymore. Wow. And it was almost like God in those days was looking at me saying, what are you going to do with that, Ken? You know, I didn't really have a choice. It was like, <laughs> do and uh, it went from some life issues, pancreatic cancer, a, a guy that was afraid of losing, wow. didn't have anyone to talk to, couldn't express his fear, to uh, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, to total confusion, to some misguided religion. But I wound up having more conversations in that second year of working there than I probably had in, in my church work on the front lines. And it was amazing. There was one time I got out of my car as I was walking towards the building and I'd been moved into a management position with marketing and product design. And I looked at that old building, that old furniture manufacturing plant in North Carolina that had been shut down for many years. God asked me, he said, you see a steeple on that church? You see a baptismal pool, any pews, anything like that inside that building? And I said, no. And he said, but there's people can. He said very clearly to me, he said, I just wanted you to love people. And this was a defining moment in my life. I began to understand what sifting means and what a time in the desert meant, that sometimes God will allow you to go to a place you didn't expect and didn't want. And he took no pleasure in it, but he had to allow that sifting to be. Because it was then during that period of time that he said, I just wanted you to love 
I didn't want you to build empires. I didn't want you to do big, great things that you get plaques and trophies and stuff for. I just wanted to love people. And I think in the process of those 20 years leading up to all that, there were some successes. There were some monumental moments in ministry. And I was really beginning to take pride in my achievements in my resume, I think, and and all the wonderful things I'd done. And he said to me pretty clearly, he said, I just wanted you to love people. When I began to do that and embrace that and say, you know what, I could do this for the rest of my life. (laughs) And I'd be okay. He then restored me to uh, come back into Greensboro to that church. Many times he's reminded me through the temptations. He said, Ken, I just wanted you to love people. So do that. One of the groups at the church I'm at, at Christ Church in Greensboro, there's still a lot of seniors. And uh, I never really was coming up through youth ministry for many years. Just never was really close to the senior population of the churches and congregations I was at. Through this change of loving people, I embraced those people, listened to their stories, went out with them, did life with them, and fell in love with them. And I think the more I got involved with them and loving them and doing life with them, they trusted me and opened themselves up with this whole planting and diversifying. So the factory was a great journey. At the time, it didn't seem so great in the early part, but coming out of it, I thank God for it every day. Are you in touch with any of those guys in the factory still? Uh, yeah, they're in. I still live in the same community, even though I commute to Greens. I live here. I've had a chance to go by there, continue some of those. It was, it was fantastic. I got a challenge for you. Yeah. If I was living in that community and pastoring in Greensboro, I'd be starting like a Tuesday night church in a bar that was just invite a few of those guys. And as, as fast as I could, I'd race one of them up to pastor it. And I'd just coach him from a distance. Maybe a prophetic statement. I've been I've been really praying lately about these fresh expressions. What's my next person? Because I live away from most of the people I minister to. We're looking for micro church models. And we're basically looking for guys who are in the plant, working in the plant, starting the church with the guys in the plant. Because that's I mean, that's got to be, if we want to get in the nooks and crannies of society, those guys that came to you with those questions, calling you rabbi, priest, not yeah. knowing what to even call you, yeah. they're not showing up in the mega church that out yeah. they're hungry for God, but they just don't know where to find him. And then and they've turned off, obviously, to what's going on. But the thought of a pastor actually going into following those lines of communication and cranking something up and handing it off is something I haven't even thought of. You know, and I wrote a book about the darn thing. I think that that there's power in this microchurch deal that we haven't explored yet. I would love to hear six months from now what comes out of this last three minutes of this conversation. All right. All right. Hey, uh, I wanted to share something with you too, Ralph, because you were a big part of it and probably didn't even realize that as we were going through coming back with both the loving people and coming back into church leadership and basically rewriting from a multi-ethnic land. One thing I really struggled with is where do I take this church? I, again, I think it took a year to figure it out, but it was really through the exponential. Uh, one time, I think I saw you out in San Diego. You helped share out there with that cohort that I'm part of. What was interesting is the discipleship factor. I did this incredible series in my own mind. <laughs> Great series. It was called Fit Church. And Fit Church was about, you know, the, if there all the components are almost like a lipid panel when you have your annual. And if everything's good, you get a good report. And I said, we don't have to be a big church to be a healthy. So I said, if we're healthy in the area of worship and outreach and prayer and I had all the different things that the doctor would rate us on. And the one at the bottom was disciple. And I thought, that's a component. So if we're healthy in these five or six areas, we're going to be a healthy church. And as time went on, and I said I got it wrong. Until our discipleship 
part is healthy, none of the other ones uh, will be healthy in the right way. And so we basically stripped everything back down to say, uh, we really want to get our people to pray before they read scripture and read with the understanding, what's the spirit saying to me? And going back to those very basic questions, and what am I going to do about it? And since we've started that, it has been fantastic. It took a while because it's, it is an established traditional church. And so most of them were saying, I've been in Sunday school for 40 years. I don't know what you're asking me to do. <laughs> so I think they're starting to understand. And I just, I am celebrating also during this time that we're coming back to true discipleship, the way it was meant to be from the beginning. And we got way far away from it. So that's a big part of my story too. I wanted to share. With you. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate that. You know, those, those three questions, and I'm going to insert them here. You know, what did the spirit say to you? What are you going to do about it? And how can we come along and help you or pray with you or becoming a model? for a lot of people. I'm, I'm hearing different parts of society. People are picking up on that. And I think you couple that together with what's going on with the coronavirus and everybody's having to do Zoom conversations and, and you don't get a prolonged worship service. Church programs are on the shelf for right now. It's going to teach us how to do church in a low overhead manner and in a manner that is easily scalable. When, when you got a lot of programs, it's not scalable or reproducible. This is going to change for the better, I think. How are you folks handling? What are you doing and how are you handling what's going on with the virus? And This week, especially, we were able to start working just the leaders to say, what are we going to do? Can't just put out a Sunday message. What was neat is we did exactly that. We, last night, we had a great, everyone in this room, which was, don't tell uh, Donald, we had about, but the, uh, the, the whole purpose last night was to say, we all have this responsibility based on what I've been teaching and preaching about discipleship to take it. And they're very excited. Some of them have a couple coming to their house or a couple of couples throughout the weekend just to talk, not so much about the virus, but let's talk about life, uh, where we are, I'll bring God into the picture, pray together, but read together. And I, I'm I'm so excited about, for, again, from my standpoint, I'm like, I think God gave us this opportunity through this. Not that this is a beautiful, great thing, but he gave us this golden opportunity. And what I'm sharing over and over and over with my folks right now is don't waste it. Uh, even, to, even to the point where I'm asking a lot of questions uh, through text messaging and emailing, tell me about the devotions that you had with your family. Uh, sometimes I get crickets on, uh, you know, with children and husbands and wives actually praying together because they're just not used to it. Well, now you have a golden opportunity to spend time you haven't been spending. I got these things rattling around my brain. And I've been thinking about if, if we're starting a microchurch and you got a guy who's busy, maybe he's a investment banker. I got a friend in China who's an investment banker who's doing church. I got a friend in China who's a college professor and taught at Northwestern University of the United States for years. She's Shanghaiese and uh, a woman pastoring a bunch of people. And so you got busy, busy, busy people. And, and how do you prepare a message? Because that can be, become a burden. And so I've been kind of kicking around a model of, oh, so we all get together and wherever, you know, maybe it's a coffee shop or whatever, doing a micro church. Uh, we go to the motorcycle shop where all the guys hang out, you know, the Harley store, because they do, in the back room, in the in the parts department, whatever. And we just assign a scripture. We're going to read this scripture next week. I want you to pledge to read it five times. And uh, maybe five times in two translations, maybe even use Xerox it in a New English version and the old living Bible. So simple. We find a way to get them in the word and then come together. And the sermon is everybody sits around and answers those three questions. What did the spirit say to you while you're reading the Bible? What are you going to do? And, and how can we help you? And spiritual gifts come alive. And, and here you are with a church with no program, no overhead and no burned out pastor. There's a lot that is going to be 
coming out of this virus thing, I think that's going to bless us. This has been coming. We've had a lot of conversations through the general church, but this one kind of take is going to help push. Pretty excited. Yeah, me too. That's really great. Hey, thanks for being with us and for sharing. And thank you so much. Appreciate sharing with you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmore.net.